Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are. Welcome to this special virtual event on the evolving effects of COVID-19 on poverty and food security. What are we learning from China? I'm Katarla Taylor, event manager at IFBRI, and I will be moderating this session. We would like to thank you for joining this virtual event live, and thank you to those of you who are watching this recording after the event. After the COVID-19 outbreak began in December in Hubei province, China locked down many areas to control the spread of the disease and the economy ground to halt. Since the easing of restrictions in April, life has largely returned to normal and many economic activities have resumed. However, the lockdowns have had significant and still not well understood impacts on livelihoods and food security. During this session, presenters will explore some of the short-term and mid-term impacts on Chinese SMEs, villages and rural households, vulnerable groups, and food value chains. We are eager to hear from you. To participate in our Q&A session that will follow the brief presentations, please submit your questions on ifbre.org or through our various social media channels, including Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfbre on Twitter. We have an exciting program lined up for you, and I will now call on Johan Swinnen, IFBRI's Director General, to give opening remarks. Yo. Thank you very much, Katarwa. Thank you for uh, this introduction. It is uh, a great pleasure for me to uh, give opening remarks to this uh, session of today, to this conference. It's also very easy to today to give the introduction. Uh, Katarwa also already reviewed the basic facts on the evolution of of COVID in China, and we all know uh, the importance that China has played uh, globally in uh, this uh, pandemic. Um, it's also uh, very easy in a way to introduce the panel today because uh, the panel is a fantastic combination of, of very well-known experts on China, China's agriculture, China's rural development. And it's a great pleasure to introduce three of our eminent IFRI scholars on the field, uh, Kevin Chen, Chao Chang, and Qin Chen Diao. And then also two uh, eminent scholars who have long lasting or long relationship and links with IFPRI. One is, uh, of course, Professor Sheng Fan, who is now a professor in, in China, but was the IFPRI Director General for 10 years until very recently. And of course, Scott Rosell, Scott's a professor in uh, Stanford, but has worked his life, his entire career on, on China, and is currently very much involved in some survey work, which he will present today. Uh, just before passing the floor to uh, the speakers, I just want to make the point that uh, actually today we will launch our new ebook, our IFPRI ebook on COVID-19 and global food security. There are several uh, chapters on China in there. And today what we will talk is actually going beyond that, okay? Looking at the second phase or the medium term or the evolving situation, depending on what term you, uh, it's almost like the post first stage of the effects and I really look forward to what we can learn from China where the of course the virus spread longer than in most other countries in terms of what has happened how the policy measures have had an impact etc so with that Katarla I'm very happy to pass the floor back to you great thank you so much Yo. our first speaker is Kevin Chen who is a senior research fellow at IFRI and based in our Beijing office and he will share on COVID-19's ongoing impacts on China's agricultural and food system and how China is responding to ensure food security. Kevin? 
Well, thank you very much, Katala. Uh, great greeting from Beijing. And I'm very happy to be here. Uh, you are aware China is the uh, first country hit by the COVID-19 and also probably the first country to bring the virus largely under the control. So it has been a, a little bit over six months now since the lockdown at Wuhan on January 23rd. Uh, certainly, we are all very curious on what has happened to China's agri-food system amidst uh, the COVID-19s. So let me go to my slides one, which really shows how important the agri-food system in China. If we do look at that data we have in 20, 2017, and agriculture now is accounts for about a, close to 8% of total GDP. But in terms of total employment, it's close to 30%, 27%. However, if we add to the food processing, input sector, trade sector, and food service, the share of agri-food system of a total GDP is going to go up to close to 16%. In terms of uh, total employment, it's up to almost uh, 33%. So that clearly tells us how important the agri-food system is to the China. And it tells us how important to keep a sound agri-food system running in China is during the COVID-19. Uh, next slide, please. And we certainly very much wondering um, what has the COVID-19 affected the China agri-food system? And since uh, COVID-19 is still ongoing, and we rely on the simulation model, which we built based on the input-output table to look at the impact of COVID-19 on China's agri-food uh, system. And a couple of uh, key results stands up if you look at the figures. And we run the simulation for the whole year in 2020, but uh, break that down for the quarter one, quarter two, quarter three, quarter four. As you, you can see, the effect on the quarter one is all negative on the overall agri-food system, on the agriculture and the pro food processing and the input sec sector, trade, and also the food service. And the food service obviously hit hard the most. But however, if you look at the quarter two, quarter three, quarter four simulation results, it's quite clear since quarter two, the agri-food system starts to recover. But also, if we look at the different food system segments, it's very clear the food service sector was shocked the most, also recovered the most slowly. And over the year, it's likely to have a negative annual growth. But overall, if we do look, do look at the data, depends on what kind of assumption we're going to give for the trade area. If we assume trade is not fully resumed by the end of 2020, the agricultural food system growth, probably annual growth rate will be around 0.4. If trade sector perform well, it could up to 1.4. So that's our prediction. And this kind of growth is low compared to the normal growth rate around three to 4%. So 
So we do project quite a significant uh, negative impact of COVID-19 on China's agri-food uh, systems. Uh, next slide, please. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, it has been uh, six months since lockdown in Wuhan. And uh, so we have some six months of data, particularly in quarter one and quarter two, the actual data which show how China's agri-food system uh, actually performed. If uh, you look at the diagram which I put on the, uh, on the slides here, uh, the growth rate overall, you can see in the quarter one, we have uh, blue color, we have orange color, orange color is the quarter two. So you can see across the figure over there, and in the second quarter, the economy performance much better. In second quarter, the overall GDP growth is positive from the negative growth in the quarter one in the, in the GDP, but also for the agriculture sector, for the manufacturing sector, and also for the service sector. They all register positive uh, uh, growth rate. And, uh, but however, there are some sectors which are registered negative growth rate for those two quarters. That is the hotel, restaurant, and also livestock production. That's uh, both negative, but you can observe the negative growth for the livestock production and the restaurant sector has been narrowed in the quarter two. And if you look at uh, the CPI in particular, which uh, you f we find that uh, actually in the first half of 2020, the consumer price actually went up by less than 4% on the year, on year base. At the same time, food price went up uh, quite a bit. It's actually 16.2% on the year-to-year -year base. But however, this kind of hike is largely driven by the price of meat, largely by the price of pork. And uh, price of pork actually largely determined by, 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 by the pork, pork price. You can also see the green price was rather stable and vegetable price actually is the, show the downward trend. So that's quite clear. Overall, the market has been uh, quite a stable. Production has been quite a stable. So we see tremendous sign of normalization in second quarter in China. Next slide, please. Uh, so with, uh, with uh, all those stable markets and the stable price, China must be done something correct. Uh, on one hand, China has been very quick to come up with policy to put in place to deal with the emergency in the agri-food market, dealing with food supply chain disruption and the logistics. For example, as early as January 30, they put a uh, uh, joint notice on ensure the effective logics, uh, logistics for agricultural uh, products and inputs. So that's only one week after lockdown in Wuhan. And in fe early February, they put a so-called green channel to make sure uh, the transportation is open and so on. So there are many emergency policy has been put in place. But however, on the other hand, the China has been building a, what we call the resilience agri-food system over years. So the, this kind of sound food agri-food system does not come overnight. They've been working on that for quite long. They've been putting in a long-term investment. They adopted a certain strategy called, particular what I like to mention, 
the rural revitalization strategy. So put so-called put the top priority on the agri-food sector. So more public investment and uh, eliminate the so-called absolute poverty and the value chain development strategy and the construction of a high yield cultivated land strategy. All those very much helpful to rebuild the what we call the resilient agri-food system, which has been very helpful to cope with the shock of COVID-19. So let me stop right here for the time's sake. Great, thank you very much, Kevin. Our next presenter is Jaibo Zhang, who is a senior research fellow at IFPRI, and he will share the ongoing impacts for small and medium enterprises in China because of COVID-19, based on evidence from two waves of phone surveys. Shaibo? Thank you, Katala. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about the impact on small and medium enterprises, where we focus on SMEs, because it's so important. SMEs account for 80% of employment in China. Next slide, please. Next slide. In the last several years, our team conducted field surveys with a large representative sample of private entrepreneurs. In the mid-February, three weeks after Wuhan lockdown, we decided to do a quick follow-up phone surveys with uh, the previously surveyed entrepreneurs. Uh, the survey was a big success. We completed more than 2,300 uh, interviews. In mid-May, we conducted the second wave for interviews and finished uh, two, more than 2,400 SMEs. Next. So these slides show the degree of uh, reopening rate in February and May. The black bar stands for February, the white bar stands for May. You can see very clearly uh, most business had reopened by May in all the seven provinces. Next. However, the restrictions of the COVID-19 caused a heavy damage to SMEs. Based on our February survey, we computed the ex expected death rate in our sample. That is, firms' cash flow couldn't sustain to the date of expected opening. The rate was very high, 16.5%. After the May survey, we estimated the actual exit rate. It's very close, 17.9%. So given SMEs accounted for 80% of total employment in last year, so we estimate, we impute the exit of SMEs in such a large scale, means, it means among Chinese workforce, 13 to 14% of them lost jobs during this period. That was, must have a huge adverse effect on poverty and uh, consumption. Next. Also, despite high reopening rate, most productions was running at only partial capacity in May. So this figure plots the degree of recovery in production and uh, employment compared to last year's normal level. If you look at the green bar, the tallest one, that means 60% of MCEs reported their employment level reached 
between 76% and 100% of pre-short level. That means most business, uh, the workers have come to job, uh, work. However, if you look at the dark bar, uh, which indicates the degree of production compared to the last year, you can see they are quite evenly distributed across different uh, bracket. If you look at the hair bar, that means 22% of firms reported their production level only reached 26% to 50% of the normal level. That means the firms has not fully recovered in their production. Reopening is not equal to re fully recovering. Next. Based on two-wave surveys, we also found the major challenges have evolved over time. This slide shows the major uh, four challenges, raw materials shortage, labor shortage, demand reduction, and the logistic shocks, uh, logistic blocks for four sectors, agriculture, manufacturing, business service, and the residential service uh, in February. It is apparent from this figure, the major challenges are related to the supply side, like raw material shortage, labor shortage, and the logistics uh, block. This is particularly true for the manufacturing sector. The largest two challenges are labor and raw material shortage. For the agriculture sector, the major challenge are raw material shortage and the logistics block. Next. By May, the situation has changed. Lack of demand emerged as the dominant challenge. You can see among all the four sectors, the biggest challenge is on the demand side. There's an inadequate demand, both from external demand and the domestic demand. This is not surprising given 13, 14% of people lost jobs. So there's a uh, shortage in demand. Also, uh, COVID-19 has spread to other countries. There's a drop in external demand as well. Next. Our survey also show entrepreneurs have become less anxious, less fearful, less worried, and more optimistic from February to May. So the first three bars present the indicators on the negative side, anxiety, fear, and worry. You can see there's a drop from February to May. The last two columns show the uh, optimism, optimism. You can see there's an increase in the indicator that people be, uh, have become more optimistic uh, during this period. Next. Our survey also has a few questions on the purchasing manager survey uh, uh, indicators, PMI. So for this PMI indicator, if it's bar 0.5, this means the business expand to increase the output, orders, or employment. If below 0.5 means they are uh, pessimistic about the outlook, they are probably their contractions, expecting contractions. Overall, we see expectations on output and orders on the next quarter are positive, uh, in particular for agriculture and the service sector. But for the manufacturing sector, if you look at the arrows, there's uh, the numbers are still below 0.5. They're the, it's the expect to a contraction in number orders and also employment. Given the manufacturing sector account for nearly 20% of employment. So this situation is lukewarm. Next. In summary, we found COVID-19 struck a heavy blow on SMEs. 
by May, most business resume production, but not uh, running in full uh, capacity. The major challenges have shifted from the demand side to the uh, from supply side to the demand side. Uh, on the positive note, entrepreneurs have become more opportunistic. Although the employment outlook for manufacturing sector was a lukewarm. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Jaibo. Our next speaker is Junshin Zhao, who is the Deputy Di Division Director of the Development Strategy and Governance Division here at IFRI. And her remarks will focus on migrants and remittance receiving households and present an ex-ante assessment of possible impacts of COVID-19 that could cause declines in income and rising poverty among migrant families. Shinshin? Good morning, good evening, good afternoon for everybody. Um, my presentation is a nice uh, transition from what Xiaobo just talked about it for uh, SME from firm side. So I will focus mainly on their employee, the most important employee of such a firm are migrants. And then I want to look at into the impact of uh, pandemic on migrants, their household income, and the poverty. Next slide. So in Kevin's presentation, uh, he presented some aggregate uh, statistics. Indeed, China has released uh, aggregate statistics for both uh, first quarter and second quarter. For the income uh, uh, information, China released the first quarter. The, the result from uh, China's National Bureau Statistics show actually uh, the impact of COVID-19 on uh, aggregate Chinese household income is rather modest, about uh, uh, minus 4%. However, we feel, especially after hearing what Xiaobo talked about it, such aggregate data may conceal more serious impact on vulnerable households when they have vulnerable income sources. So for this reason, we, we have done a micro simulation analysis using existing data of 2018 wave China family panel study. So this is an example analysis. That's different from what Xiaobo presented. So it's a modeling uh, analysis. So in the data, it shows more than 40% of households uh, have migrants or remittance income. So we can expect that the decline in remittance income can have a much disproportionate impact. So for two reasons. The first reason Xiaobo mentioned, uh, SME actually employed 80% of workers. This is very similar for migrants. So 80% of migrants also work in this sector. But in, in, no, all, uh, also work uh, in SME and uh, most importantly work in the sector most exposed to the pandemic shock. So the chart basically shows five sectors, actually shall board cover part of these sectors. So their high share of uh, uh, migrants uh, working in this sector. So those sectors 
are highly affected, not only by lockdown, also by later uh, slowdown in domestic international demand. So majority of migrants work in this sector, also work in this sector, tiny small firms, even not medium scale, it's a micro and small enterprise. Of course, because of this, most of them actually without formal employment contract. Next slide. So <clears throat> migrants, most of Chinese migrants send money back home. So remittance is a, a very important income source for many low and middle income uh, quantile households. So the, the top panel of the chart shows the percentage of household in the data with remittance. We can see the bar for, quant, uh, for quantile two and quantile three are much higher among uh, rural households and similar for urban households. So from some point of view, we can see remittance actually contribute significantly uh, to keeping many households out of the poverty. So on another side, for, for the remittance receiving household, many of, the, many of their migrant family members working in the highly affected sector, therefore they are highly possible to be adversely affected by the pandemic. Next slide. So we developed micro simulation model based on the data. So we basically considered a different type of jobs. They are permanent or temporary employee, and they're working which sector, are working in what kind of size of firm. We also consider different phases. Uh, the first phase is lockdown, pretty much is the first quarter. And the slow recovery phase is pretty much second quarter. And then going down to next uh, to second part of this year, starting in this month, we can call it a relative fast recovery phase. So, so we see this, this graph basically gave us accumulated distribution of number of uh, households with remittance and uh, measured by the decline in their total income, not the remittance income, in their household total income. We can see very heterogeneity impact of COVID-19 on household income because households depend on the remittance income in a different way. Also, their migrant family member work in different type of jobs. So about 5% households with income falling more than 40% during lockdown, 40% falling more than 20%, and 80% fall at least 10%. Economic recovery actually helped many households regain their lost income, like Xiaobo present. So many workers actually returned to their job. However, they still couldn't regain all of their income. Even looking forward uh, to the end of this year, we expect some households and their income will continue to remain below the pre-shock level. Next slide. So because of decline in remittance income, we expect a rise in poverty among such households. So the top panel basic present the poverty rate for national rural urban, we focus particularly on low-income households. Low-income households are those households, they are not poor, pre-shock, 
but they are in Wales Pontile too. So we can see about 13% of such a low income household actually fall into poverty after the shock. Economic recovery helps them reduce the, their poverty number, but still some of them still remain in the poor. Even with fast recovering, we, uh, we expect about 4% of low-income households to position the, uh, fall into poverty. The second chart is about poverty gap. The poverty gap might measure how deep for the poor household in the poverty. We see under all scenarios, a poor will become more impoverished in 2020. Next slide. So what we can learn from China. So number one, important things we try to argue, national aggregate statistic data are important, but that's not enough. It may conceal the fact that households with less secure income were hardly hit during the pandemic. The reason for them to be hardly hit, one important reason is lack of unemployment protection and other social protect, uh, social security insurance. This leave migrants in a very vulnerable position. They are unlikely to cause such a big shock. And then Xiaobo mentioned the importance of uh, SME. Indeed, because migrants predominantly work for SMEs, so government support both in financial and policy side to such enterprises as an important equity contribution of, of the China for mitigating the adverse income effect faced by migrants. However, in the medium to long run, an integrated rural and urban social security system, including unemployment insurance, is the most sustainable solution for rising resilience among migrants. The Chinese government has been doing this and the pandemic has shown this is so urgent. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, Xinxin. I would now like to remind all of you watching online that you can submit your brief questions on ifree.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfree on Twitter. We will be coming to our Q&A session following the panel discussion. Our final speaker is Scott Roselle, Senior Fellow and Co-Director of the Education of the Rural Education Action Program in the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Scott will share on how rural China is coping with COVID-19 and examine the impacts on its 600 million rural residents. Scott. Good, uh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, Wow, the, the other uh, presentations were, were very, very nice. And um, um, it's actually complimentary, I think, to, to, to the previous speakers. And this is an ex post, so this is an empirical look at exactly the same issues that uh, 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 Xin Shen was looking at. And the flip side of what um, uh, Xiaobo was looking at. What our survey is, is we are looking at outside the epicenter. So we went and randomly chose 726 villages and uh, did form phone interviews exactly one month, two months, three months after the, the start of the pandemic. And then 
Last week, we've been um, conducting a six-month uh, follow-up. I have some very brief, very preliminary data from, from yesterday, <laughs> and uh, uh, we'll, I'll, I'll show you some of those. Uh, these claim uh, about 25% of rural China's population. Again, it's outside the epicenter. Um, and they were phone calls to uh, individuals inside the village who were not village leaders, who were not party members, uh, but were um, uh, uh, people that we had um, identified through the teacher as a, um, a, a mom or a father of, of a child in the village. Uh, so they're just a regular villager. Um, and, and this is what we found. We, we, we asked four types of questions. What were the core teen measures? Um, what were the impact on health in those villages? And then what were the employment, education, and non-COVID-19 health impacts? That's what the, the cover. And what you see that the lockdown was absolutely draconian. It was, it was every village. Now, remember, these are thousands of kilometers away from, from the epicenter. And nearly every village, there was no travel into the village. Nobody could leave the village. Nobody could walk around the village. And nobody was, children weren't permitted to play outside. As you see, 88% of the villages for two months, kids were inside the household and couldn't leave. Um, and so th these were very serious. Um, and at night and day uh, that uh, th these are photos of some of the villages in our, um, uh, in our study. We ask our informants to go outside of their house and take a photo of the streets outside. And you can see not one kid, <laughs> not one person was walking around. So, so this is total lockdown. Um, and uh, so the good news of a total lockdown is um, after one month, two months, three months, um, the 700 villages that we surveyed had around 700,000 uh, villagers in them. Uh, remember, these are so, so because of the timing of this, in these villages were all the migrant workers that uh, both Xiaobo and, and Xin Shen had been talking about who are back home for New Year's and can't leave. Um, out of all these 700,000 workers, 10 of them had, vi had viruses, um, infections. Um, of the 700 villages, only four villages had any infections at all. Um, and so the um, the, the rate, the infection rate is about 0.01%, uh, which is exactly what China's infection rate is outside of Hubei. Now, Hubei is much, much higher. <laughs> uh, I, I put the yesterday's uh, U.S. rate per million, right? Uh, so China is 12 per million. The U.S. is now 10,000 times that much uh, at 13,000. Uh, per million, um, and California, we're, we're quite close behind uh, there. So that's the good news. The bad news is exactly what Xin Shen predicted. Ah, this this is uh, so. Uh, I, I think it's uh, uh, you know. So your micro prediction model is very good, Xin Shen. And in February, employment was essentially zero. No one could leave. No one could return. But by March, when these um, uh, restrictions started to fall, as you saw, uh, people started to go back to work. Um, but um, uh, it was only a month, two months out, there was only, still 66% of people were, were stuck at home. Um, uh, it's over half by April. Um, and so this is that slow recovery that we're seeing. 
Um, unfortunately, we don't have May to, to line up to Xiaobo's uh, um, job. Now, uh, I think we're a little bit higher unemployment rate than what Xiaobo was showing if I had to predict our May results. And that's probably because you remember, we don't have the coastal provinces in there and probably the, go, the rate going back in those provinces are higher. So these are poor, more remote villages um, and but but it, it lines up very much the the decline uh, of employment of course is coupled with the decline of income and as you see almost all villages had big declines of income in February obviously in March almost 20 percent of annual per capita income for rural families at the end of of, of these two months um, and um, uh, and and here's our July numbers okay almost exactly six months um, after lockdown, four and a half months after relaxation, we find that still 25 to 30% of rural workers are without a job. Um, some of them have decided not to go back to work, like mothers uh, who have to stay with their kids because school uh, is not in session. Um, uh, uh, and there's also workers who do have a job, and this is also exactly what, what Xiaobo and Xinxian are, are are finding and predicting, uh, hours and wages are all lower than last year at this time for the 75% of the workers that have gone back uh, to work. Um, I, and I think um, uh, because of lack of time, I took the slide out. Um, what Xinjiang was talking about, the need for unemployment insurance, um, the total number of, of national unemployment insurance after three months into these villages was exactly zero. Okay, there was no unemployment uh, given by the national government. Some local governments were passing out food. There were, there were some uh, 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 local transfers to a very small number, fair, the, the relatively wealthy villages there. Uh, and so how do villagers cope with that? Well, you can see the biggest impact, this is after three months, we're doing this right now for the rest, is this big reduction of spending on food. So it's, and, and we find big uh, negative effects on nutrition of especially children. We've been following up in, in the, the schools that these kids are going to once they finally got back to school. They borrow money from relatives and friends. They reduce spending on education. They reduce spending on healthcare. So non-COVID-19 uh, healthcare. Uh, and, but you can see there's, there's almost no uh, incoming funds uh, um, from, um, uh, from government sources. <laughs> we have an urban sample that we followed up with that, that, that's not included here. And, and uh, the number, the amount of uh, funding of urban residents who almost know it didn't lose their job was positive. They've been given consumption coupons, they've been given employment uh, in assurances, haven't been able uh, to, to be uh, laid off. And of course, they were the first ones rehired. And so there's this very big inequality between um, the the uh, the state's support of of the the different sectors of the economy. And finally, just my my last set of impacts. We've been doing a lot of work on this. We're uh, my group is the Rural Education Action Project. So we've been uh, following students and actually now going back to their schools now that they in. April and May, they many of them been going back to school. And you can see there's good news and bad news. The good news is there's been a lot of rise uh, of uh, and, and coverage of online learning. I mean, this is better 
than Palo Alto <laughs> during uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the COVID virus um, rise here in California. Almost 80 to 90% of schools have organized in our, we're providing during February, March, online learning to kids. The problem is, <laughs> of course, is that the internet's not always good. Students have to go outside to get a better signal, but they can't go outside to get a better signal. Uh, students are unable to communicate with their teachers. And so according to an early July survey, this is in one of our provinces of 600 urban and rural teachers about their students. Uh, here it is in July, right? They're just finishing this school year and the urban teachers say, yeah, we're about a month behind. We lost a, a month of learning, um, at, you know, out of the three month online learning. So, you know, not great, but not bad. But rural students are three months behind last year's. And in a very competitive education system uh, that already has a big gap between urban and rural students, I think that this is something uh, that, that really needs to be attended to. So in summary, China's lockdown was total. It was nationwide. Um, and, uh, and of course, they had phenomenal success in reducing COVID-19 infections and death. We, we spent uh, some time in another paper talking about what would have happened if there had been infections spread out to these villages and counties, poor rural counties, where the health systems weren't very good. And I think that that, that can't be minimized. But there's been a huge cost in employment and income and education. And I'd like to um, just, just say that Xinjiang's um, uh, real focus on the government needing to get an, un an unemployment and a social security system set up, uh, not only just for pandemic response, but for all responses, uh, you know, I think that um, uh, that's needed. And we didn't see any results that, that it's in place right now. So. Uh, uh, I, I'm going to stop right there um, and uh, uh, really thank uh, IFPRI, uh, thank Yo and uh, the whole staff for, for setting this up. It's been very, very interesting. Great. Thank you, Scott, and to all of our speakers. We will now move to the Q&A portion of the program, and I'd like to remind our audience that we want to hear from as many of you as possible. So please be brief with your questions when you type them into the chat box or using the hashtag AskIFPRI. And please share your name and institution if you wish. I will read one question at a time and direct it to the relevant speaker. And please note that in some instances, in the interest of time, we will consolidate your questions. The first question that I have today is for you, Kevin, and it's coming from Nazri Othmane of the African Sustainable Food International. His question is, how can SMEs in Africa benefit from the Chinese experience to help manage its uh, increased increase food insecurity and, and fight the spread of poverty? Uh, th thank you, uh, Katala. Uh, this is uh, certainly very important questions. And from the experience uh, uh, in China, and certainly as Scott mentioned earlier, and uh, China has been adopted very stringent uh, policies to control the spread of the COVID-19, and that come certainly come with a cost. And uh, uh, the most important thing I think uh, we have to realize now, if we, now we look at the uh, new cases of inf infected cases around the world, you look at the case in India, 
uh, it's almost 60,000. If you look at the, in fact, the case in Africa, uh, it's rising very fast, probably faster than any other part of the world. So this is very uh, alarming. And that could put a lot of restrictions on how many uh, the small and uh, medium enterprise can actually remain open and uh, provide uh, employment uh, opportunity, provide an income source for the needed households. And uh, so that's going to be a, a, a very much the important thing that for, for the Africa to uh, continent to uh, uh, to look at. So if we look at the ch Chinese case, certainly the most important thing is how you act, uh, take the, for example, what we call the, the balanced act. In one hand, you have to control the virus. And on an another hand, you have to keep a certain level of economic uh, ongoing, particularly with the, those small and medium enterprise because it's provide the major source of the income for the uh, vulnerable uh, uh, group. So the way China has been coping with that is really uh, adopting the what I call the very much the risk risk-based management uh, uh, practice and uh, risk zoning in some place, and make sure that you don't adopt uh, 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 the one parties for the whole nation, but uh, you have to re based on the different risk level in the different region and uh, to manage uh, the uh, opening of the small and medium enterprise and make sure that some level of economic activity can be active while you control the disease. So that's probably the most important thing to do. Great, thank you, Kevin. And so Jaiba, I'll come to you. A question that has come in is on the SME's recovery and the, res the person is asking, how has the government been able to support SME recovery in China? Uh, one major intervention, the government uh, tried to uh, give a lot of financial help to the SMEs. But we, what we found, that kind of policy was not very helpful. Only 15% of SMEs report they received financial support from the government. During the normal times in the last few years, the percentage was 13 percentage. So there are only two percentage point improvement uh, despite the massive uh, spending uh, support. Uh, other policies are more supportive, uh, more helpful, such as uh, with some of the fees and uh, uh, reduce the tax uh, taxes. Uh, about uh, more than 40% of SMEs report uh, they uh, receive some reductions in uh, fees and uh, tax. Uh, the third one is on the reduction in rent, but there's only part of uh, some firms receive the help because the uh, landlords mostly are also privately firms. They couldn't give the reductions in rent. So uh, the fourth one is on the uh, employment security contribution. Uh, the government allow uh, firms to delay the payment of the social security for the employees. But this policy only apply to media and large firms for the self-employed business and the small, very small enterprises, uh, employment, uh, employers don't uh, pay the social security for the employees. So the policy didn't apply. So overall, the, the policy uh, was not very uh, helpful overall. So I've, based on all study, we argue uh, 
support for the vulnerable groups, vulnerable population, would in turn you generate demand for SMEs. Because what we found, the biggest challenge for SMEs is lack of demand. Consumers don't spend. So if you give the money to consumers, the vulnerable groups are poor, they will spend, which in turn will stimulate SMEs. So that's probably a better policy. Great, thank you, Jaibo. I'll come to you, Jinshin. And the question for you is, has the survey or the analysis considered gender disaggregation? Yes, uh, the short answer is yes. So uh, in the survey, actually, this, this is a very good survey. It's not just by household, also by individual. So at the individual level, actually, the survey show about uh, one third of migrant are women and two thirds of men. However, when we uh, dated our scenario analysis, we noted and the affected uh, uh, female and male uh, migrant, uh, the, the gap start to shrink. About 66% uh, of female uh, migrants uh, are expected to be affected. About 77% of male are affected. And also in terms of their falling income, the gap actually further shrink, especially uh, in the slow recovery period. The reason is most of female uh, migrants working in the much more vulnerable sector, like uh, hotel, restaurant, hospitality, and this kind of sector. The recovery for this sector is not just supply side issue, like Xiaobo said, uh, said, that's also demand side issue. And then we also predict uh, for the whole year, the, the impact on male and females become almost the same. Back to you, Katrin. Great, thank you, Jinshin. Scott, I'll come to you. And the question for you is, have the workers who have returned to their villages and are currently unemployed, are they generally engaged in farming? Uh, and of course, um, if you if you look at um, uh, if you if you look at unemployment statistics for China, right? It, it you see for the nation the reported government figures. It's gone from I don't know five point two percent to six point one percent, right? I mean that that's what China says that is. And and then but then you look at our numbers uh, from from all three of these these papers. And what you see is that, you know, uh, uh, literally hundreds of millions of workers were affected, these rural workers. Um, you know, how do you, how, how do you basically um, put those two things together? And what the theory in the government is, is that every one of the rural workers in China that are working in these SMEs and they're working in hotels and restaurants, uh, they're from a farm. And so if they get laid off their job, they go back to their farm and they're farming so they aren't unemployed, right? And so, um, so that's, that's, that's why, and that's how they, how they count it. And indeed, every single one of these rural people that we've been talking about, and there's you know, uh, 800 million rural uh, residents in China, every single one of them does have a farm. Um, and uh, it, they're very small. Now, the question <laughs> that was asked was, are they farming when they go back? In other words, is this another source of them uh, 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 sort of uh, dampening the negative impact? And the, the fact is, is 
um, uh, a massive number of these uh, workers um, are between uh, 20 and 35 years old, and they've never worked off the farm. On the excuse me, they've never worked on the farm. They they don't know how to farm, um, and uh, uh, they they have absolutely no interest in farming. And so um, that we found that very very few people went back to the farm and started farming. There's a small number, mostly elderly. <laughs> elderly men, right, from 40 to 60 years old. So those men that had been in the labor force that came back, uh, they did start participating in farming um, uh, once they got back. Um, th there's one thing I, I, I would like to uh, ask Xinxian a little more. In our data, what we do find is that uh, women actually are, are more impacted than men um, by COVID-19, uh, uh, you know, in this, and they don't go back to farm either when they've lost their job. But the fact is, is they choose not to go back to work because they've basically been stuck at home taking care of the kids. The kids don't go back to school until mid-May. Uh, and um, uh, that those households where the woman was, was a big uh, money earner, the households had the biggest impact. Great, thank you, Scott. And now I've got a broad question that I'll throw out for Kevin and any of the other panelists that may wish to comment. And that question is, do you have any thoughts on how China's experiences will affect the world, given that it's one of the largest global economies? So I'll start with you, Kevin, if anyone else wants to come in. Sorry, Kara, could you repeat the question quickly? Yeah. Sure, the question is, do you have any thoughts on how China's experiences will affect the world? It's coming, the question is coming from Cecilia Acun from the University of the Philippines in Los Banos. And so her question is, any thoughts on how most of the world will be affected given that China is one of the largest global economies? Uh, yeah, I think uh, the COVID-19, uh, the impact on the China's agri-food system is going to have uh, quite large uh, significant impact on the world as well, and uh, uh, particularly on, on the trade sector, for example, and uh, in, in the imports and export sector, that sector has been heavily impacted by the COVID-19 uh, outbreak. And uh, so th there are many countries, for example, introduced the uh, trade new trade barriers, then the exports, and they put a additional trade barriers on the food imports, for example. So this kind of uh, uh, issues is going to be rise more and more as the uh, COVID-19 has been spread uh, all over the world and in many other places, many other parts of the world now, they are still experiencing very severe uh, uh, shock, uh, which brought by the COVID-19. So whether this kind of, uh, uh, issue and the situation we are facing, uh, I'm sure that uh, going to produce a very profound impact on the uh, world's food economy. And uh, uh, so if this kind of situation prolongs, particularly in the low income country, like in some of the Africa co uh, countries, uh, this kind of shock will be bring very severe uh, impact on, on the vulnerables in the food security areas. Great, thank you. Great, thank you. Does anyone else care to comment? 
Scott, Scott, um, I can hear you and then we'll come to Scott. Uh, so me first? Okay, so actually I like to point out uh, the impact on China's neighboring country. So I also have worked uh, for Myanmar. So the Myanmar's agriculture export heavily depend on the border trade with China. So during lockdown period, all of a sudden the trade was stopped. So a lot of perfect fruit actually basically lost. So now China start to open, but they have much more restrictive policy. So therefore, Myanmar expect this year their agriculture export will fall significant from uh, the last year. Back to Scott. Yeah, and it's sort of the same um, uh, sort of idea, and but it's sort of a two-edged sword. Is one is is all the export restrictions and import restrictions from China. Uh, are, are lowering demand from the traditional sources, you know, fruits and vegetables from Myanmar, but uh, also grains and staples from the U.S. and from, uh, from, from other, from South America. Uh, and of course, what overlies that, right, is the U.S.-China uh, deteriorating relationship. Uh, and that's drastic. Now, the good news is, <laughs> it depends if you're a farmer or if you're, a, if you're buying on the international market, is prices have fallen in the U.S. and the U.S. is looking at other markets around the world. So, so it's, a, it's a good market to import from, uh, mainly because of not only uh, increased restrictions of China for importing, but the, the whole deteriorating relationship. So it's really complicated. Uh, and there's there's supply and demand issues um, interacting, um, uh, and uh, I, I think that the, one of the things that I think international organizations have to do is try to really uh, help uh, developing countries understand the markets out there and the the the, the credibility of them, the the or the risks involved in entering them and and trying to cover their food gaps. Great, thank you, Scott. One last check. Does anyone else care to comment on that question before I move on? Okay. So our next question is for you, Jaibo. It's coming from Bibi Gonzalez, uh, who's based in Guatemala. He's saying, from your presentation, we've seen that demand has lowered in multiple fields, with agriculture being one of the least affected. We also saw that the manufacturing sector is not performing great. Do you think there is a shift in increasing behavior uh, and an increasing emphasis for natural foods? Are people looking at prices or just generally trying to be healthier? Thank you. That's a very good question. Uh, you have some eye. Uh, noticing the agriculture sector doing well in terms of demand. So basically, people still need to eat. Uh, they need, still need to uh, uh, consume uh, vegetables, green, etc. So the demand for agricultural products are still there. But for manufactured goods, the demand, China is a, is a larger exporter. The external demand has dropped. So that's a big uh, factor. Another factor is from the domestic demand. I said earlier from uh, Scott's presentation, Xinjiang's presentation, because so many workers were laid off. So their demand for daily goods had, uh, have dropped a lot. So this has a big impact on manufacturing sector. 
So that's the main reason. There's a differential uh, effect on the two sectors. Great, thank you, Jaibal. Kevin, a question for you coming in from Ajay Singh of India, and it's a it's calling, I guess, for your opinion on how long will it take for China to recover to levels pre-COVID-19? Uh, well, this is a very challenging question to, to answer. Uh, I'm not fortune-telling in the way, and uh, uh, I cannot really predict that it depends on so many uh, factors. Even uh, in our simulation, and uh, we uh, have assumed, for example, the recovery period where the, uh, we have three scenarios. And the end of June, well, it's uh, largely proof we are wrong. And uh, we have second scenario, say, in the end of uh, September, we have another scenario, the recovery will last until uh, uh, end, of, end of December. Then again, the trade, as we mentioned, in the US-China trade uh, dispute, that, that's also bring a lot of uncertainty in, in this issue. So that's making the prediction uh, uh, very difficult. However, come back to our prediction, come back to the uh, first to the second or second quarter, you can't, China economy, the performance of China, the economy in second quarter, I suddenly become more optimistic, let me put that away, right? You see the number which I show, and obviously the Chinese economy uh, seemed to perform much better in the second quarter. I think much better than most people would, uh, uh, would predict. And uh, so in that uh, note, uh, I, my prediction would be I hope and uh, the recovery in China will be on uh, quickly, probably uh, by end of, a, hopefully the third quarter. And uh, but then again, it's largely contingent on the, how the trade sector going to perform, the trade relations. Great, thank you. you. And so I, Scott, I have a question for you that's coming in from Sarbzwar Sahu. And this is a question that people, parents are asking all over the world. Right, so the question is, do you know what the plan for the reopening of schools in China is and any lessons for the rest of us? Um, yeah, um, yeah, indeed, it's a, it's a question that um, uh, there's a big uh, local school district meeting last night here in Palo Alto <laughs> asking that exact question and Stanford's trying to decide. Um, but in China, they, um, it, it, as you see, there was a lot of, so there was a huge effort to give online uh, in-home schooling to, to kids and, and virtually 90% of villages, the most remote villages in China were getting online learning. Um, and they were, it was coming through a whole bunch of different venues, TVs, uh, uh, cell phones, uh, you know, and, and internet computers. Um, but, you know, of course, there was, wasn't very effective for, for many of the villages because of problems with the infrastructure. Um, and so they, there was big pressure in China, like everywhere else in the world, to open up those schools. Uh, China took a very slow approach. Um, and, uh, you know, they basically said, okay, we're going to let the, the, the go a gradual phase back. And they, they opened up sixth grade, ninth grade and 12th grade. Uh, those grades that were going to graduate to the next level, take a competitive exam, um, uh, the, the, at the, at the end of the year. And they brought them back 
three uh, in in April basically. Uh, but then they then they gradually came back in province after province through May. By the first of June, virtually every school was back in in session, um, uh, except no pre no preschool, so uh, ages four to six. And then the days for younger kids, uh, six, seven, and eight, um, were restricted half and half to try to to try to keep social spacing, social distancing among kids that, that couldn't do it. So, so there, and, and until today, kids are still wearing masks in, in many schools. Um, and, and so the, the, there's a, a huge number of, of, uh, of uh, gradual, uh, gradualism to get back in the school and then social distancing measures uh, once they're and, and schools are very shut down. It's hard to get back into schools for anybody from the outside. And so they're still trying to, to keep um, uh, any possible infections from coming back. Great, thank you, Scott. I'll now turn it over to Yo Swinnen. And Yo, I'll let you uh, pose the last question. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much, Katarla. I actually had a whole series of questions, but we, I make, wanna make sure that we have enough time for Schengen at the end, because I'm sure I would also very much would like to hear his view on things. So I'm going to, um, some of the questions have been asked already. I'm going to have two questions. Okay, one is for Chabo. And Chabo, um, can you tell us a bit how the SMEs have, have done compared to the large-scale uh, companies? Because there's different hypotheses, and, and apparently it seems to be different in different countries. On the one hand, that uh, so the large companies have performed better for a number of reasons, but sometimes also because they're more relying on hired labor versus family labor, they have done actually worse in some countries. So. That would be my uh, question to you. And coming back to Scott, this is actually a general question, but since we have limited time, Scott, you said, I mean, China has done fantastically in terms of reducing the COVID infection with the strong lockdown, but it's become, it's a huge economic cost, okay? But of course, huge is relative, right? So if we look now across the world and what is an unfolding across the world, is this cost so huge compared to other countries which have not had such a severe lockdown. I know only future can tell, but it's certainly something um, we should think about. Thank you. Thank you, you. Thank you for your very good question. Uh, for our survey, we focus on the small media enterprises. Uh, so they suffer more than the large firms. So if you look at the Chinese stock market, that's mainly these uh, large firms. They are doing extremely well, like the US stock market. There are for two reasons. One is uh, many firms are high-tech firms. High-tech firms benefit from the coronavirus restrictions. So many businesses going online. So this generates demand for the high-tech firms. Also the high-tech, the workers in high-tech firms can work from home. The net impact on them is minimal. This one. Secondly, the government policies essentially mainly target the, the big firms. They benefit from the policies like the financial support, uh, they can get uh, loans, also tax reductions, also the deferral of the surface security payment. So their workers, they can reduce their burdens. For SMEs, they didn't enjoy the uh, policy before. So they, so right now they couldn't enjoy the new policies. So there's uh, also the policy difference. Great, thank, thank you. you. And, thank you, and Scott? Uh, yes. Um, uh, oops, yeah, I'm unmuted. So it's, uh, um, 
Yeah, that's uh, it's that's the the sixty four thousand dollar question, <laughs> right? Is is uh, you know what what are the costs and benefits, uh, you know of uh, of these lockdowns? Um, you know, I I, I think that uh, we're starting to get an idea of the costs, uh, as you see from these different um, uh, different studies, uh, and uh, and the benefits, right? The 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 rebound of the of the of some of the markets Kevin was talking about, and certainly the rebound in optimism. That Xiaobo and Xinxian were looking at. Um, yeah, th there's also other costs out there, um, you know, of these uh, severe lockdowns and then and then relaxed. Right? Uh, is is during the, the very severe lockdowns, uh, you can't even go to the hospital. And so uh, th there was a very famous paper by a former Stanford uh, GSB PhD um, uh, who wrote about there'd be a hundred times more deaths. Um, it, from locking down the economy and, and not having people have access to uh, health care. And you see that 10% of rural people reduced health care expenditures um, today, right? Uh, and, you know, what's the, we, you know, what is the negative? So once we get all those together, <laughs> we, can, we can do your, uh, your cost-benefit analysis. I think the problem is when you try to take lessons from China is, can any other country in the world do it on the massive size uh, economy, very decentralized, very rural, it's still 60% rural, can they do a lockdown like this? And unless you have an organized hierarchy with party organizations at every single level, you know, in one week, <laughs> in one week, 800,000 villages had every exit and entry to that village blocked, right? In one week, um, and uh, and you know I think that 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 uh, uh, I think that th those are the are the, the and every country has to make those calculations. And um, uh, I would say uh, I I would say China benefited from locking down. Okay, I I think the rather than to let it spread like it has in the U.S., for example. Uh, but uh, there are huge costs to that, and I don't think many other countries can, can, can rely on that same cost-benefit formula. Great. Thank you uh, very much, Scott. And thank you to everyone for participating in the discussion. I would like to now call on Shengen Fan, who is the Senior Chair Professor at China Agricultural University and IFPRI's former Director General. And Schengen will give us concluding perspectives. Over to you, Schengen. Thank you, Katala. Thank you, Joe, for inviting me to give some my thoughts. Um, you know, I used to do that at EPRI, you know, just to give some sort of summary for various policy seminars. Let's see whether I have enough, enough skill. Uh, I came back on January 6th, you know, after I left EPRI, just two weeks after that, COVID 19 came. So I dropped all my work, my plan work with China Agricultural University to zoom in to focus on COVID-19. So immediately me, Kevin and I formed an informal sort of online discussion group, you know, group um, include some of the experts or scholars from different universities, different parts of China, including some of the professors professor in Wuhan, just to, to compare the notes, to go to the you know, supermarkets, wet markets, to see the food prices and so on. And then we, we you know, advise the government what sort of action we should take. I thought that, that was a really rewarding experience. So we had a 
several rounds of informal sort of online discussions. We also had a couple of rounds of more formal discussion, open discussions uh, on um, responses, how China could have respond, responded better and, and so on. And as a result of that, uh, Kevin and I ad edited a special issue uh, at the China Agricultural Economic Review. We had, an, uh, I think it's six papers in the first um, volume and another two uh, in the second. So I thought the early action from researchers uh, actually is quite important uh, for not, for not only for Chinese policymakers, but also for, for the whole world. We actually were the first group to alert the world that uh, you know, if we don't do it right, we could face a global food security crisis. Africans, South Asians, Latin Americans, we stated that in February, so as early as February. So now what I learned from various speakers, is number one is um, I think February, March was the worst time here in China and here in Beijing. You know, I was locked in my apartment here without going anywhere. So that was dark days for, for China. So the, 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 the food supply chain was broken, particularly for poultry, for livestock, for, um, let's say for seafood, all this were basically broken. Uh, food, the, the stable production didn't, were not much affected because you know, they were already planted, uh, already in the field and so on. And then, yes, the, the rural migrants, you know, they were in, in their hometown for Chinese New Year, they couldn't travel back to their job, so basically, they lost probably one month, maybe a two-month income. So you can calculate how much income they have lost. Then obviously, uh, the food prices went up in February by quite a bit, and the March continues to rise and come down to to uh, come down quite a bit in April, May, and then June. So uh, you can see that. February, March were hit the hardest in, you know, in many aspects of our lives, economies, and so on. So April, May, and June are the recovery month. And I have seen that people begin to come back to the cities to work. You know, the rural uh, migrants begin to, let's say, to resume their work. Food production, food prices begin to drop, and so on. And by July, I think, the latest data, latest figure I have seen, informal and formal data, is China basically recovered, mostly recovered, except some of the um, very hard hit regions uh, in, in the middle part of China. Now, so what we have learned here after COVID-19, I think COVID-19 to some extent is a wake-up call on our food system, on agriculture system. So two things I learned. One is resilience. So our food system, future food system must be resilient. Nowadays, we are facing so many shocks. COVID-19 is only one. The big floods in southern China, the Yangtze River Delta, invasion of the, uh, the African desert locusts, invasion of four army worms, then African swine fevers. You can see many, many risks and threats are coming to hit the food system here in China. So how can we rebuild a system better? Resilient is one area we must work on. Uh, the second is inclusion. We learned that the COVID-19 hit the poorest the hardest. Rural migrants, 
are the poor consumers in urban centers, women. I'm, I'm very sure the, the women are hit very hard because women usually are engaged in service sector, hotels, restaurants, and so on. Even today, many restaurants here in Beijing are not in full capacity, maybe only 50%. The hotels, that's a friendship hotel I used to stay. I happen to, to be there today. It's almost empty. And all these hotel service sectors used to employ women. So they, they will hit very hard. But how can we rebuild a system for better inclusion is another big question we needed to, uh, to take on. Now for China, I think there are a couple of issues we needed to look at. One is rural-urban divide. So I, I really learned quite a bit from Scott's presentation. The rural areas has been affected much more than urban areas. The urban areas, you know, the big firms, governments, universities have not been affected. And our salary here in Beijing has not been affected, zero. Maybe to some extent, there are even some subsidies. So now, also in terms of region, ironically, it's a middle part of the country that have been affected more. So coastal areas like Jiangsu, Zhejiang, Shanghai, their economies are very robust. They recovered very quickly. And then Western China, China had a special strategy this year to end poverty by 2020. And lots of investment and lots of efforts went there to help the poor to be out of poverty. So where do we miss? It's a middle part of China. It's where, where are the, this scoff map show. There, they will hit very hard. So how can we make sure that uh, they can really be rebuilt better after the COVID-19? Now, the social protection is a big issue. That's another thing we have learned. Uh, so if you have a social protection system set up before the crisis, when the crisis comes, you will be much better be prepared. So you can target the poor people. You can use that system to get your money, get your uh, cash, or get your it's a service into these people very quickly. So that's another thing uh, we learned uh, during this uh, crisis. Now, finally, I wanted to emphasize the data and the evidence, timely, reliable data on food prices, supply, demand, poverty, hunger, and so on. So I think the Chinese experience can be shared more broadly with Africans, with South Asians, with Latin Americans, and so on. And now, not surprisingly, I'm also participating in lots of webinars and they all ask me, just like you asked Kevin or Xiaobo and others, how China has done this. How can we learn from China? What sort of mistakes these countries can avoid? So with that, I thank you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this webinar. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Katala. And I thank you, all the speakers, uh, Xiaobo, Xinzhen, Kevin, and Scott. Thank you very much, Shengen. And thank you to everyone for joining us for this important discussion. And a brief reminder to join us next week on August 4th at 9.30 a.m. when we will have the launch event for our new book on COVID-19 and global food security, which was released today. Stay safe, everyone.